Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And you know that famous line from that famous hit by Frank Sinatra? I want to wake up in a city that doesn't sleep. Well, obviously, Old Blue Eyes is referring here to New York, New York. But on this week's show, in honor of the upcoming summer solstice, the longest day of the year, we're going to sort of kind of take the chairman of the board's line and apply it to our own fair city. So we're calling today's program Up All Night. And over the next hour, we'll explore the Washington that's buzzing and humming after the sun goes down. We'll go on night rounds with doctors caring for kids in a cardiac ICU. What I've decided over the years, I'm no longer going to be surprised by anything that can happen. I have to be ready to say, all right, I can be awake all night and I can do it. We'll search for alley cats in the wee small hours of the morning. The truth about feral cats is that they live outside. They've lived outside their whole lives and the outdoors is their home. And we'll tuck into French toast and eggs over easy at one of the region's oldest 24-7 diners. So when people come in at like 2, 3 a.m., do you say good night or good morning? Have a nice day. <laughs> I mean, they're going to sleep. I'm starting my day. Now, I know what, what many of you might be thinking. Not everyone necessarily associates D.C. with being a city that doesn't sleep. But 24 hours a day. There are certain places you can visit in the nation's capital that, without fail, are always open. In fact, we're at one of them right now. It's nearing midnight, and based on the hullabaloo, you'd probably think we're, what, at a hoppin' club, a busy restaurant maybe, a crowded bar? Well, think again. We're actually on the west end of the National Mall at the Lincoln Memorial. Like all the memorials on the mall, the Lincoln Memorial is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And why is Henry Bacon's neoclassical temple such a go-to destination once the sun goes down? Well, let's hear from the people who've flocked to this particular hot spot tonight. Yeah, I like the lighting, so um, it really stands out among like darkness. I think it's pretty cool during the night. Are you surprised with the number of people who are out and about here in the evening? Actually, yeah. yeah, going up here, walking up here, I was like, wow, there are a lot of people up there. Kind of a scene. Yeah. And we appear to be the oldest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't they all have bedtimes? <laughs> what brings you to the Lincoln Memorial here at like almost midnight? Well, it's well lit, and I think most of the pictures of the Lincoln Memorial are at night, so got to come at night. I think the monuments are beautiful at night. It's my favorite time to see them. Would you say this is kind of a romantic place to come? I think uh majority of the people here were couples or kids, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm a resident. I'm working here for one year, and we, well, we like the monuments here even more in, in the evenings. So we really like the lighting and everything. It's making it more, even more mysterious, special. And the most beautiful is when the sun is going down and everything's turning red. That's what I like the best. We love it. Those were some nighttime visitors to the Lincoln Memorial, just one of the memorials open 24-7 on the National Mall.
We're going to head east on the mall now, up to a spot in Lafayette Square, just across the street from the White House. That's where a woman some call the original occupier sits, in a chair, all day and all night, to promote, as she says, the cause of peace. Her name is Concepcion Peixoto, and she's been occupying that spot, if you will, for 31 years. Now there's a push to commemorate her struggle with a national memorial. Mark Adams brings us the story. By day, Concepcion Peixoto courts endless streams of tourists from all over the world, educating them on what she describes as the danger of a nuclear catastrophe. By night, Peixoto sits alone in her chair, at times enduring not only extreme temperatures, but also what she says has been harassment by passersby and police alike. Aided by her late partner in protest, William Thomas, Peixoto has been maintaining her peace vigil directly across from the White House most every day and night since 1981. Why do you do it? Why have you done it for three decades now? I have a cause. And seeking justice and peace, that was keeping me here. Peace and justice. If Peixoto had her way, all nuclear weapons would be dismantled, starting with those in the U.S. It's a view she doesn't hesitate to share with anyone who stops by her 15-foot-long camp on the edge of Lafayette Square Park. There's no more killing innocent people and destruction of the planet. I agree. Peixoto's vigil structure is made up of a tarp in the shape of a small cave opening out toward the White House. It's the only thing separating this small elderly woman from the elements. On either side of the tarp is a large wooden board covered with anti-war quotes and grisly pictures of the devastation caused by the atomic bomb. The sight pulls tourists' eyes away from the grandeur of the White House and toward the ugliness of war. Um, This is my first time here, my husband and I, um, and we're all about this. I mean, we believe in peace, we believe in anti-war, we won't even let our children go and join the war because it's not our fight. The person who's doing it looks kind of loony, and and, and, it, and it, it sort of trivializes the, the very serious issue. She seems a little bit off her rocker, um, but I do think it's good that the kids sort of get to talk to someone who's representing a, a different, almost even extreme view, just to sort of challenge what they think. Now, Peixoto's supporters, many of whom came from the Occupy movement, have started modest efforts to make her peace vigil a permanent monument. Plans are underway to draft up a formal proposal to create a national peace memorial in Lafayette Square Park. Yeah, uh, Robbie's at the, the vigil, is that what you said? Yeah. yeah. Charles Holsable, a friend of Peixoto's who occasionally helps staff the vigil, came up with the idea several months ago. I would like a, a spot that would represent the, the commitment and, and the further commitment it's going to take in order to have peace. That when people come there, it's, it's a solemn... Uh, sacred spot. Eventually, the proposal would need authorization from either Congress or the President. And according to Peter May at the National Park Service, that seems unlikely. There is guidance in the Commemorative Works Act that says that a new memorial should not encroach upon an existing memorial. And there are memorial um, elements already in in, uh, Lafayette Square, so it's hard to picture how something new might be put in there without... um, potentially encroaching upon it. doesn't mean that it can't be done, it's just it's another complication. He says most new memorials are authorized at a rate of about one per year, if that. Still, Holsapel remains undeterred. 
He plans on producing a series of videos and posting them online to help encourage people to back the plan for the memorial. And while Pashoto likes the idea, she doesn't see herself ending her round-the-clock protests anytime soon. Will this potential peace memorial, in your mind, attract more people to the cause of peace? I hope so. I hope so. That the more people know, the more people get involved. But any official approval for a memorial may be just as elusive as the peace which it would be meant to promote. Then again, that's what Peixoto likely heard in the early years about her chances of being able to continue her protest for any meaningful length of time. I'm Mark Adams. You can find pictures of Concepcion Peixoto's decades-old peace vigil at our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, going on the prowl for Washington's alley cats. Yeah, I'm known as the cat lady. (laughs) It's just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. With the longest day of the year coming up next week, today we're staying up all night. Coming up, we'll go on a crack of dawn hunt for alley cats and check out the debate over how to handle feral felines. We'll also hear a very personal tale about what it's like to burn the midnight oil caring for an elderly parent. But first, we turn to a group of people who regularly spend their nights performing small and sometimes large miracles. And they do it armed with compassion, a healthy dose of caffeine, and quite a bit of medical expertise. They're the doctors and nurses in the cardiac intensive care unit at Children's National Medical Center. Jonathan Wilson spent a night with these folks, along with the many families thankful for their help. With the proliferation of hospital dramas on primetime television these days, it's very easy to forget just how quiet the night shift in a hospital can be. But inside the cardiac ICU at Children's National Medical Center, the only ICU in the D.C. area focusing specifically on cardiac patients, it's often quiet and harrowing at the same time. All right. His heart is much better, but he still has some diastolic dysfunction. So we're just going to proceed slowly as he continues to recover. Dr. Craig Futterman is in charge tonight. Right now he's making rounds, getting and giving updates on the 16 children here tonight. He says two or three children are still unstable, requiring interventions every 20 minutes or so. But he thinks all are headed in the right direction. But he also says things can change very quickly. What I've decided over the years, I'm no longer going to be surprised by anything that can happen. I have to be ready to say, all right, I can be awake all night and I can do it. 
Futterman is one of seven attending doctors who rotate through this ICU. He ends up working the night shift about once a week. He's a small, energetic man who sports a closely cropped salt and pepper beard, and he likes talking about cardiology. That's a good thing for Dr. Peter Dean, the cardiology fellow on call tonight. Dean is near the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to doctors here, and one of the reasons he's here, other than to help save lives, is to learn from Dr. Futterman. Dean says the night shift can be exhausting, but it's actually the slow nights that get to him. The really the slow nights, the ones that kids aren't very sick, that's great. That's a wonderful thing. But sometimes that night drags on. It's 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Whereas if there's a lot going on, new kids coming in, then sometimes you, you turn around at 7 o'clock and you're ready to go home, and it, it goes by quickly. Tonight, one child doctors and nurses are watching closely is two-week-old Zachary Wansier. He was born five weeks premature with a congenital defect known as Tetralogy of Fallot, which affects the way blood mixes and flows in his heart. He's a day removed from corrective surgery, and his tiny body seems lost amid all the tubes and sensors surrounding him. Zachary's father, Herschel, says even though he and his wife, Dana, knew about their son's condition before he was born, the emotional peaks and valleys of the past couple of weeks have been extreme. It's a roller coaster. We're on sort of an uptick. Last night was um, was, was sort of a downtick. He had a, he had a rough first night um, adapting to um, all the changes that they made in his heart. Dana Wansier says she's actually been getting a few three-hour stretches of sleep while her son is sedated to help him heal. Once he comes out of the paralysis state and um, the sedation and he's more awake, I probably won't ever leave this room. (laughs) So I'm trying to sort of think about that and take advantage of resting now because there will be a time probably soon, perhaps by tomorrow, that that won't be happening. But while patients and their families can sometimes snatch some sleep and even doctors can occasionally lie down for a few hours, it's nurses who often literally keep the blood pumping here. Why don't you go now? Because I feel like I can't leave you with all this to do. Can you go? Please go. You need a break. See ya. Just you exit. Menchi Barris is one of the charge nurses in the ICU. A native of the Philippines, she stands less than five feet tall and seems perpetually to have a disproportionately large cup of coffee at her side. Oh, yes. I can't do night shift without coffee. <laughs> Barris says she likes the night shift better. There are fewer doctors and nurses roaming the halls and a greater opportunity to focus on patients. And Barris says the sometimes quiet atmosphere means the staff needs to be even more prepared for the worst when it comes. You need to have... A strong staff, highly skilled workers to respond to whatever emergencies that um, could possibly erupt because we're it. For all the coffee they may consume, Dr. Futterman says all it takes for the doctors and nurses here to shift into high gear is a patient who needs help. Even after 25 years, and even though he's sworn off ever being surprised, a busy ICU is enough to make him a little nervous. And he says that's a good thing. Sometimes... If it's a very busy unit with a lot of unstable patients, yeah, all right, I'll have a little bit of angst going into it. But I'll tell you, if it's been a very busy night and I've done my job well, it's a rush. You know, you leave the unit in the morning knowing that everybody's still alive. A bunch of them could have died but didn't because of the good work that you did. It's a great feeling. And make no mistake, even on a quiet night like this one, lives have been changed and saved in the cardiac ICU. I'm Jonathan Wilson.
So for the doctors we just heard from, it's part of their job to take care of people in the wee small hours. But the woman we'll meet next has become somewhat of a nighttime caretaker, not professionally, but personally. And the person she's been caring for is her elderly father, who's been suffering from dementia. Jane Beard got in touch with us through WAMU's Public Insight Network. It's a way for people to share their experiences with us and a way for us to reach out for input on stories we're working on. Metro Connections' Emily Friedman met Jane and handed over the microphone so she could record Metro Connections' first ever audio diary. Jane Beard recorded for a week, mostly during the middle of the night, inside her bedroom closet. And here's her story. My name is Jane Beard. I live in Silver Spring, Maryland. I have lived in this house with my husband and kids and uh, also my father. He's 88 and he moved in about nine months ago. My dad was in World War II. He was in a unit of guys that were sent into Europe right before the Battle of the Bulge and they were sent in with only their summer weight uniforms. And There was documentation of the fact that the military had to decide whether to send munitions or winter weight uniform for these guys, and they sent munitions. So there they were in the trenches, in snow, in cold weather. He got taken out of the Battle of the Bulge right before it started with frozen feet and was in a military hospital for about 18 months afterwards. He has bad dreams many nights a week, and they are bad dreams. He shouts out. He is moving in his dreams. He's disoriented when you go in afterwards. He will sometimes think I'm a nurse. He'll sometimes think I'm another patient. And the next morning, he never remembers that this stuff has happened. He uh, isn't getting treated for PTSD, although he's on anti-anxiety medication. We have help here 12 hours a day. They bathe him. They do all the heavy lifting for the most part. And so a lot of the times when I wake up hearing him, I just spend hours awake just trying to figure out why it's so hard. What's wrong with me that this is so hard? I can actually remember an exact spot by a tree in our backyard where I declared to both of my parents that if my father died, I would die, and that so therefore I would have to die before him. My definition of me comes from him. His um, companion of 10 years was dying. He was really tanking, and he said he needed another solution, so we offered him to come live with us for a week or 10 days until we could introduce him to some assisted living places. I had five different places lined up for him to look at. And then he got here, and he didn't want to go. So in the house right now, I live here with my husband, Jeffrey B. Davis. So, Jeff, I just want to ask you, what is it, what is it like for you to have my father in our house? Um, the main thing is, uh, basically, it's okay for me It's harder on you because it's your dad. At the same time, there are times when it's pretty challenging. You know, when uh, when we're alone with him and he gets uh, starts having messes and the like, and I know that he needs my help, so I'll go into the bathroom and deal with it. But it's um, it's like a part of me has to pull away because I just 
you know, I just don't actually want to be there with him while we're dealing with that stuff. Do you think it would be different if it was your dad? I think that, you know, when it's your dad or mom, I guess, but when, you know, it's it's different from when it's your spouse's. And uh, also, you know, you go, okay, I'm doing the right thing. I know we're doing the right thing. You visited nursing homes. Yeah, we're doing the right thing. We're doing the right thing. He's got space and he's got family around him and he's got a lot of attention. and His um, dog. He's got his dog, all these things. And so it's fine. And I want it to be over. And then I think about, well, being over means he's dead. And, and I don't want to wish for that. I know that my dad is being a dad now in ways that I can't articulate. I am learning from him. I am seeing myself and my whole family through new eyes. I love him. I really do love him. But just like things can be easy and hard, so is the way you can love somebody. That was Jane Beard and her husband, Jeffrey Davis, of Silver Spring, Maryland. Their story was produced by Emily Friedman. For more information on our Public Insight Network, visit metroconnection.org pin. So we humans aren't the only ones up late at night. There are all sorts of creatures prowling our urban landscape long after the sun goes down. Take, for instance, feral cats. Genetically, they're like a house cat, but they're born in the wild. As environment reporter Sabri Benashore tells us, trying to get a handle on these felines keeps a very particular group of individuals up all night and well into the morning. In an alley off of 10th Street Northeast, old grapevines, garbage cans, and chain-link fences are all the same yellow hue under the harsh glow of street lamps. It's four in the morning. Amanda Novotny is unloading her station wagon. So these are humane box traps. Novotny is with Alley Cat Allies. She's trapping feral cats. So when the cats um, enter the trap, they have to go all the way to the back um, to get the food, and they step on a trip plate, which makes the door close behind them. There are at least 13 feral cats, including five kittens, that live in this alley. Well, I could show you the damage they've done to my car. Pat Gillum is a neighbor. She watches the scene from her balcony. These cats are too wild. They keep mating, and when they mate, it's a bunch of ruckus, you know that. And then the babies come, they get aggressive because of the kittens, and my, they attack my dog and me. Amanda Novotny and another neighbor, Kathy Sinziger, walk up to a back porch full of cats and set out the traps. The black and white one on the steps is the grandma cat who's been the sentry. Smelling around the front of the cage, the trap? Just thinking about it. Thinking about it, but like typical cats, Grandma is unimpressed. We all have a bet that the black and white one would never be caught because she's smart. After a half hour, one of the mothers takes the bait. She isn't happy. Not at all. But these cats aren't being taken away, at least not for long. They're just taking a trip to the vet, says Novotny. So male cats are neutered, female cats are spayed. They're giving their their rabies vaccination. Their left ear, the very tip of that, is removed. So the ear tip is a universal sign that lets people know that that cat has already undergone spay-neuter surgery. Um, And we will pick them up tomorrow morning and release them tomorrow afternoon. This is called trap-neuter release, or TNR. Fix the cats and put them back. Novotny says after getting fixed, they won't be as aggressive, won't howl, won't fight. 
and most importantly won't reproduce. Still, having the cats back doesn't thrill Gillum. I just don't think they should be able to run loose like this. The alternative, though, is for the cats to be put down. Feral adult cats taken to a shelter will get euthanized because they're unadoptable. I do not want any animal euthanized at all. Um, I just wish they had a home, but they're too wild to have a home, aren't they? No, bring them back. (laughs) No, bring them back. As she speaks, the colony's matriarch finally takes notice of the trap. Mama's going in there. We got Mama. (laughs) Yeah, because Mama is the ringleader, okay? Now, trap neuter return has its detractors. There is no reason to believe it works. Robert Johns is with the American Bird Conservancy. The University of Nebraska did an exhaustive literature search on this issue. And they could not find a single legitimate case where TNR actually eliminated a, uh, a cat colony. And, he points out, cats are predators. When you save a cat by putting it in a, a colony, what in fact you're doing is killing a handful of wildlife every year. He claims 500 million birds and other small creatures are killed by cats every year. TNR advocates point to numerous anecdotal cases where the practice has worked, including at sites in D.C. And Fairfax County says the strategy has reduced the number of feral kittens brought into its shelters by almost 60 percent. Back on 10th Street, with almost all of the adult cats and traps, Novotny has just pulled two kittens out of a drain pipe. These kittens are young enough to be socialized. Unlike most of the cats born on the streets of D.C., they are now looking for a home. I'm Sabri Beneshore. You can find photos, tips on deterring feral cats, and information on how to adopt kittens on our website, metroconnection.org. the microphone over to you and read from your letters. On our regular DC gigs segment, we recently featured a U.S. Army bugler who performs taps at funerals in Arlington National Cemetery. Well, our listener Julie heard that story and was prompted to share this tale. The late father of one of my childhood friends was himself an Army bugler during the Vietnam War. While at Arlington National Cemetery, he got the notion that he could play taps while aloft in one of the magnificent trees that grace the cemetery. Three quarters of the way up, he fell and broke his leg, but fortunately not his bugle. Mustering up all his discipline and musicianship, he managed to perform a rendition of Taps. From a musician's standpoint, that was the worst version of Taps ever. However, the family heard a poignant haunting rendition, and following the ceremony, had the sergeant in charge help find him to convey their appreciation. Their praise mitigated the pain of his broken leg, but didn't relieve him of the sergeant's wrath and non-judicial punishment he was awarded for his creative license. 
Lauren Landau recently did a piece about Upper Northwest D.C.'s Erev, the wire that creates a symbolic boundary for Jews who observe the Sabbath. The story prompted feedback from people of many faiths, including this anonymous listener who writes, I'm Christian, but interested in all religions. When I visited Israel, I remember in the hotels for Shabbat, they would automatically set the elevators to stop at every floor because the observant Jews were not allowed to press the buttons because the modern interpretation of starting fire had been extended to include electricity. What is equally interesting for me is the ways people of all religious traditions mold their belief systems to be able to adapt to changing times. And finally, not so much a letter as a shout-out, really. We were delighted to see that D.C. Brow, our city's very own brewing company, has unveiled a limited-release oatmeal stout called Hell's Bottom. Its inspiration was a story about the once-notorious D.C. neighborhood Hell's Bottom, which we featured on our monthly segment, The Location, with Kim Bender. So we raise a glass both to Ms. Bender and to the folks at D.C. Brow. Do you have a comment or question about the show? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org, or you can send us a tweet at WAMU Metro. Time to make the cupcakes, and some pretty wild ones at that. It's a cornmeal cupcake with a chicken nugget breast inside of it, topped with maple buttercream and drizzled with maple syrup. I know people probably say, fried chicken on a cupcake, but if you like the savory and the sweet, it's the perfect cupcake for you. That and more coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're burning the midnight oil and staying up all night. So far, we've dropped by the National Mall. We've done rounds at Children's National Medical Center. We've drifted through alleyways. And at this point, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling just a little bit peckish. Now, I know, I know, D.C. isn't exactly famous for its 24-hour dining scene. I mean, the city does have a smattering of 24-7 eateries, like the Diner in Adams Morgan, Osmond and Joe's Steak and Egg Kitchen in Tenleytown, and on the weekends, you can always toss in standbys like Annie's Paramount Steakhouse and Kramer Books and Afterwards Cafe in DuPont Circle. But if you head out of the city and into the suburbs... So here we are in lovely downtown Bethesda, going up Wisconsin. As I recently did with Metro Connection producer Tara Boyle. How would you describe the streets right now? I'm seeing people. Yeah, there are people out here in Bethesda, too, out at 12.54 a.m. It's kind of amazing. You'll find quite a few more options in the 24-7 eating department, like Amphora's Diner Deluxe in Herndon. Bob and Edith's Diner in Arlington, Double T Diner in Catonsville, and then in Silver Spring, Laurel, and yes, Bethesda. Dude, we're here. The Tasty Diner. I like how it's tasty, T-A-S-T-E-E. 
<laughs> I like that. The Silver Spring branch hails back to 1946. Laurel's been going strong since 1951. And in Bethesda, there's a great neon sign in the window. It says, Open Eats. Awesome. The old-fashioned dining cab on Woodmont Avenue has been around since 1935. Here we go. And despite a kitchen fire 10 years ago, not only does Tasty's still smell like a classic diner. Can you describe the smell for our listeners out there since this is radio after all? Deep fried, decadent delight, basically. It looks and feels like a classic diner, too. You've got your old-fashioned counter with bolted-down stools, your cushy pleather booths with miniature jukeboxes, and, of course, your healthy helping, or not-so-healthy helping, of greasy spoon goodies, made fresh to order on a sizzling hot griddle. Well, the diner is, is Bethesda. Without the diner, is no Bethesda. Larry Hall's been working at Tasty's for about seven years. Tell us about the regulars who come here. We, we have most of the customers that come here, the people that are like second, third generation of customers. You know, the grandparents been here, their parents, the kids and their kids. And during our visit, Tara and I meet quite a few of those long-timers, like Andrew, a 20-something Bethesda native who's wolfing down a chocolate shake and fries with his friends Corinne and Carly. So is the Tasty Diner a place you come to often? Yeah, I would say a few times a week, late at night. At this point, the crew has been nocturnally noshing at Tasty's so long that, as Corinne says... It's kind of like home when it's late at night, you know, because really there's nowhere else to go. So this is kind of the hub for us. And for a whole lot of other people, too. Corinne says Tasty's late-night scene attracts all kinds of characters. Definitely just a lot of, like, motley crews will come in when you're there at weird hours. Of course, we probably look like Motley Cruz and we come in, too, so I guess I can't judge. But Kyle Brick waits tables on the overnight shift. How long have you been working here? I've been here almost two years. It'll be two years in August. And he says the motliest cruise he's seen? What's the weirdest thing you've seen here in the middle of the night? Are the lovebirds. Probably the, uh, the romantic types getting a little too frisky. That happens quite often. Sanitize the uh, boots. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We've got our cases of lice all ready to go. Kyle says Tasty's is at its rowdiest once the bars close. It gets pretty busy during the night rush. How busy is pretty busy? Uh, We'll have all the tables filled up, four, five, six people on each table. We'll have a line out the door, almost to the street sometimes. And as the night wears on, that's precisely what happens. Holy smokes, look at that line. (laughs) There's now about two dozen people in line waiting to get into the Tasty Diner now. If you were to put like a velvet rope, it would be like they're waiting to get into a club. It has to happen in spot. About 10 or 15 minutes, it's going to get real loose in here. Al Snowden started cooking at Tasty's in 1978, so he knows all about the after-bar rush. It's 2 o'clock now, so like 2.15? Yep. First Maryland, and then D.C. closes at 3. So we get a double whammy. Usually cleaning up around 4.30. You ain't seen nothing yet, I guess is what I'm saying. After so much time behind the counter, Al's pretty much seen it all at Tasty's. So what's the strangest thing you've seen in all your years here? Strangest thing I've seen? I don't know if I can say that on radio. (laughs) (laughs) You know, actually, you'd be surprised who you're sitting next to. Uh, You you could have a street bum here, you could have a senator here, and and the street bum looks better than a senator, you know. But not only has Al Snowden seen it all, he's cooked it all, too. Tasty's menu is a five-page compendium of comfort food. And if you don't see what you want... If you can tell me what it is and how exactly you want it, we'll do our best to get it there. If you can't tell me, I can't do it. 
In the case of me and Tara, once we sit down at our booth, we see exactly what we want, and it's all about breakfast. I have four pieces of French toast in front of me, and it it looks amazing. It's got a little powdered sugar on there. It smells just the way French toast should. Oh, that's good. That is good. Dare I say, it's tasty. <laughs> For Tara and me, this is where our night ends. After we polish off our food, we head out the door, where a bustling line of people awaits, all of them eager for burgers and breakfast, hot cakes and hot coffee. And in the wee small hours of the morning, none of them ready to call it a day. To see snapshots from our late-night excursion to Bethesda's Tasty Diner, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And if you have a favorite late-night dining spot, we'd love to hear about it. Send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is WAMUMetro. Now, presumably, those party people who hit up tasties in the wee small hours will eat their eggs and wolf down their waffles and then stagger home to hit the hay somewhere around the crack of dawn. And that, as it happens, is right around the time the people we'll meet next are getting their day started. Adele Cawthorn and Bill Curlina used to be principals with D.C. public schools. And last June, they both left their jobs, not for another school system, but for the gourmet cupcake business and the extremely early hours that business requires. Kavitha Cardoza brings us their story. Adele Cawthorn cuts up chunks of slippery, glistening white cream cheese to weigh. I use a scale because I've learned when you're producing large batches, it doesn't help to use measuring spoons. <laughs> she wakes up at four in the morning to begin a long day. At the beginning of the week, she bakes about 500 cupcakes a day. But by Friday... Yeah, I might bake seven or 800, and then on Saturday, we pretty much lose count. Cawthorn delights in dreaming up new cupcake varieties. There's a pomegranate martini cupcake, a bacon cupcake, even a fried chicken cupcake. So it's a cornmeal cupcake with a chicken nugget breast inside of it, topped with maple buttercream and drizzled with maple syrup. If you like the savory and the sweet, it's the perfect cupcake for you. Opening Cooks and Cakes Bakery has been a leap of faith for Cawthorn. She was an educator for 16 years in Baltimore, Howard, and Montgomery County school districts. But she says one year as principal of Noyes Education Campus in Northeast D.C. was enough for her. Last year, she left a $127,000 job with DCPS to start a gourmet cupcake business, along with another disillusioned principal, Bill Kalina. Uh, and so I did jump on at the Michelle Rhee bandwagon and was really hoping for a true, strong reform for the school system. Both Kalina and Cawthorn were hired by former Chancellor Michelle Rhee, but left under current Chancellor Kaya Henderson. At least 17 principals are leaving DCPS this year, and a majority of them were hired by the former chancellor. Kalina has 17 years of experience in education, mostly in Montgomery County. He was head of Hearst Elementary School in northwest D.C. for two years. Both he and Cawthorn stayed a far shorter time than the average five-year tenure of an urban public school principal. 
But both these former school administrators brighten when they recall their teachers, principals, and especially the children. I loved the kids, of course, because they always come to you as they are, no hidden agendas. Ask them what they didn't like, and they answer almost in unison. It's what they call DCPS's extreme, intense, overwhelming focus on testing. Just because you teach it on Monday at 2 and the kids don't get it doesn't mean they're not going to get it Saturday at 3 p.m. when the light bulb goes off when they're in soccer practice. But we have gotten to a point every child in that class must get it by Monday at 2 because we're going to test Tuesday morning at 9. And so you must have it. That's just, that's not natural learning. Both former principals say they received little support from DCPS's central office. If your numbers don't look right, You're going to get a phone call or a nasty email, even though you're there 12, 14 hours a day, sometimes getting advice from people who've never walked in your shoes. For me, personally, it was way too much. Kalina says one incident in particular still upsets him. The power went out at our school, and it was rainy and cold and and completely dark, and I ended up asking the Sidwell principal if we could move our students over there. He says no one from central office ever contacted him, so he decided to send everyone home. I got my hands slapped, but if nobody from the central office and I'm at a privately funded school who can only host me for four hours, what am I supposed to do? DCPS doesn't offer any explanations about why principals leave. In general, spokesperson Melissa Salmanowitz says DCPS takes several issues into consideration, including test scores, family and community satisfaction, school culture and enrollment figures. But she says the focus is always on what's best for students. But research from the Wallace Foundation shows what's called principal churn creates serious problems for a school. Students, teachers and parents have to get used to the new person's priorities and new relationships have to be formed. Plus, there's always the danger staffers believe they don't need to do things differently because the new principal will leave soon as well. I am about to melt some semi-sweet chocolate that is going to go in the middle of the s'mores cup. And then top it with a marshmallow topping and some graham crackers. It's delish. Kuthon says it's ironic the cupcakes she baked as gifts to cheer up her teachers have become her full-time career. She says it was hard to leave her job in education, even though she would never go back to being a principal. For his part, Kalina hasn't completely closed the door on returning. Who knows what will happen in the future? I'm only 40, but certainly DCPS will not be in my future. Kalina says he walked away from a $95,000 job and is making hardly any money now. Still, he believes he has something even more sweet, something that makes it easier to get out of bed early in the morning, a renewed sense of purpose. I'm Kavita Cardoza. To see a slideshow of Bill Kalina and Adele Cawthorn at work in their cupcake shop, head to our website, metroconnection.org. Sugar, sugar, I love you. Sugar, sugar, I need you. Sugar, sugar, I love you. Sugar, sugar, I need you. 
Before we say goodbye today, we here at Metro Connection are pleased to announce a brand new series on the show, and it's a perfect fit for this week's Up All Night theme. We're calling it DC Dives. And over the next few months, we'll be going on a bit of a bar crawl as we explore the city's most renowned and infamous watering holes, local institutions where neighborhood history is made and remembered. Jared Walker takes us to the first dive in our series, the Raven Grill in Mount Pleasant. Despite its name, the Raven Grill does not serve food. Well, originally when the Raven opened, it did have a grill in the back, and they sold cheeseburgers for 15 cents. Um, Pickled eggs were on the menu, and a few other things. In fact, we found an original menu in the walls when we were renovating. But that was way back in 1935, shortly after Prohibition ended. So what's available now? Uh, Bags of Utz potato chips. (laughs) (laughs) Gretchen Georgiadis is the general manager of The Raven, a dive bar in the heart of the Mount Pleasant neighborhood of northwest Washington, D.C., and one of the oldest drinking establishments in the district. We are the longest standing liquor license that has never changed address or um, closed and then reopened. So what's the secret to The Raven's longevity? I think we have a really nice eclectic uh, staff as well as clientele. People don't come in here and pretend to be something they're not. Derek Brown is a bartender, author, and owner of two high-end cocktail bars in D.C., The Passenger and The Columbia Room. You know, I love cocktails, and I love great service, and those are things that animate the way I create a bar. But what I love more than that is authenticity. I love when you go to a place that is uncompromisingly itself. Brown's not alone. The Raven has a diverse crowd of like-minded regulars. Our clientele really runs the gamut. We have uh, 80-some-year-old men that still come in here that hung out here back in the 40s. I've got, you know, 21-year-olds that come in on the weekends, and I've got everything in between. We have a somewhat local celebrity that's here every day. He used to play with uh, Aretha Franklin, and he's on half of the music on our jukebox. And he'll come in every day and play songs that, you know, he was a studio musician with her and Trout and toured with her a couple times as well. True to form, Nate Bradham shows up with a pocket full of $1 bills and begins to play an assortment of his favorite classic R&B tunes. I've been coming here since 1975, and I come back for a few friends that I do have and the jukebox. I love that jukebox. I put my life savings in the jukebox. I love music, you know what I mean? While the Raven is a relatively open and friendly place, like any good dive bar, it has some eccentricities, rough edges, and unwritten rules all patrons must abide by. It's kind of like this. I like Snickers and I like foie gras, right? And when I go into a 7-Eleven, I don't expect to get foie gras. And when I go into a four-star restaurant, I don't expect to get a Snickers bar. And each experience is great, but they are different. So what happens when you ask for foie gras at the Raven? I had a young lady come in the other night and ask for a hot toddy, and I almost had to stop myself from laughing. And she's like, oh, what? It's okay if you don't have honey. I said, sweetheart, I don't have honey. I don't have lemons. I don't have sugar. I don't have tea bags, and I don't have hot water. So I can give you the shot of whiskey, and that's about it. DC needs places like this to remind us 
that uh, D.C. is comprised of a lot of different segments and populations. It's not just about the people, hill staffers who come in town. It's not just about the hipsters and their bike lanes. It's not just about the African-American population. It's about a, a confluence of so many different kinds of people. And it's what makes D.C., in my mind, the greatest city in the, in the world. Do you think this is where those people meet in the middle? I think a lot of them meet here. And, you know, I've been in here nights with, uh, you know, Ethiopians and Latinos and hipsters and white people and black people and uh, black hipsters and old white guys and just everything under the sun. And tonight is no different. The room fills with strangers and friends, black, brown, and white, young and old, drinking beers, laughing, and listening to music from that fantastic ancient jukebox. I'm Jared Walker. Do you have a favorite DC dive you want to recommend for our series? Drop a note to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is WAMU Metro. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza, Emily Friedman, Sabri Benashore, and Jonathan Wilson, along with reporter Mark Adams. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Jessica Officer. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To listen to our most recent episodes, just click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll go moonlighting and meet Washingtonians who have a career in one field and a side gig or hobby in another. We'll hang out with a Capitol Hill power broker slash restaurateur. We'll hear from a woman who recruits executives and rescues dogs. And we'll meet people who've made their part-time passion into a full-time job. At some point, you're going to have to choose because you're not going to be able to sustain both once the hobby starts growing. It grows to a certain point, and then you have to make the hard decision. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.